Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to Polygamy, What Love Is This? I am your host, Doris Hansen, and we talk about Mormon polygamy on our show. We're thankful that you are watching us, and we do hope you enjoy what we have to say this time. It is part two of a series on the equality of male and female in God's original design, which although men have changed, God has not. But first, for information about how a shield and refuge can help you or someone that you know get out of polygamy with a safe place to go, you can go to their website, um, shieldandrefuge.org, or you can call the toll-free number 877-425-9993, and everything that you discuss, of course, will be held in strict confidence. If anyone has questions or comments or would like to be a guest on our show, you can email us at email at whatloveisthis.tv or call 385-240-2888. And now I would like to welcome back our standing co-host, Earl Erskine. <laughs> My sitting co-host. Your sitting co-host, our sitting co-host. I'm happy to be here. These are really interesting, and I know we... Uh Covering a lot of fun fun and interesting stuff. So. A lot of stuff, and it's very thought-provoking. It is. And it could provoke some... Um, angst in some people as well. We'll uh, see. We but anyway, so. <laughs> throughout human history, women have been considered a second class. They've been often treated as property to be used or neglected according to men's convenience. Historically, it really has been a man's world. And this is still true today in Mormon polygamy groups. Women in polygamy are traded or bargained for. They're useful to increase the man's chances of becoming a mighty god and, of course, to be a celestial baby maker. They exert strict patriarchal authority over females, and this, however, was never God's plan. So we begin part two of our series on the biblical standard of male-female equality because we want all females in polygamy to know that there is not a male on this planet whom God created as better or as above you in any way. Early Mormonism laid the foundation that allows for no gender equality. Tragically, some of their own females, some of the Mormon and polygamous females are their own loudest voices against their own freedom and equality under God. For instance, Eliza Snow, a highly respected pioneer Mormon plural wife, preached for and exalted polygamy. You have a quote it from says, her. <laughs> yes. The more I comprehend the pure and ennobling principle of plural marriage, the more I appreciate it. It is a necessity in the salvation of the human family, a necessity in redeeming women from the curse. So where does the Bible say that? Where does polygamy. the Bible say polygamy redeems women? No. In fact, the, such nonsense is not even in the Book of Mormon. Jesus Christ is the Savior and Redeemer. He never taught the necessity of polygamy for women's redemption. Now, the words Redeemer or Redeem is in the King James Bible 74 times, and not one time does it ever refer polygamy as redeeming females. 
God is always the Redeemer. We have two examples. One from Psalms and one from Isaiah. They remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. And in Isaiah, our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Now, if our Redeemer was polygamy, wouldn't it have kind of made that? Have mentioned that. Or Jesus might have mentioned it too. Something you know? like that. Yeah. But God, not the Mormon man, redeems women. We have a quote by Heber C. Kimball to add to our repertoire here. <laughs> Gotta love these. <laughs> Women are made to be led and counseled and directed. If they are not led by the power and authority they are connected with, they will be damned. Women are to be led. If I should undertake to drive a woman, I should have to drive her before me. And then she becomes my leader the moment I do that. I should lead her and she should be led by me. As Brother Brigham said last Sunday, it is for a man's wives to take a course to please their husband. So it's all for the male, and the female just is there to do their bidding. There are dozens of quotes like this in uh, early Mormon pioneer polygamists made, illustrating the demeaning attitudes with which they held and treated females. Teaching is doctrine that women are below the man, and so they must submit to polygamy. But God never positioned a woman to be subservient to the male, nor is God the author of polygamy. We ended part one in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve ate the fruit and God pronounced consequences, not curses to the man and the woman. So let's That's do Genesis right. three sixteen again. Okay. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Now, the interpretation of this passage has been used and it's been twisted so yeah. much uh, to fit into cultures rather than to understand precisely what God intended cultures to be. There are four statements in this verse that have been grossly misunderstood. And those four statements are, and that's just in the one verse. Yeah, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and the fourth he shall rule over thee. So those are the four misunderstood and misapplied statements, and many of these statements have been used by the Mormon male or yeah. the polygamous male to justify uh, their to yeah. subjugate the women. Absolutely. Now, in this statement, God is not cursing Eve. You don't find the word curse um, when he uh, says that she's required to experience pain in childbirth. Nor is God cursing the woman that she must desire her husband while he's free to carouse and seduce and marry all the females he chooses. Nor is God commanding the husband or the male portion of society to rule over the female. We want to quote a very good comment by Carrie Miles who wrote the information that I gathered a lot of this uh, material for on our show. From, from the New Man, New Woman, New Life, page 10. God put a curse on the ground, but he did not curse the man or the woman. Instead, what God says to them is a prophecy of what will happen to them because of what they have done. These bad things are consequences of their actions. 
Now, it, to illustrate, it's kind of like telling someone, like you would tell your child or somebody, don't touch the fire or you'll get burned. Yeah. Now, the warning of getting burned is not pronouncing a curse on them if they do, but right. it's warning of the consequences of what's going to happen if you do touch the fire. And it does happen if they touch the fire. Now, the false belief that God cursed women has caused and continues to cause oppression against them. We quote another excellent comment from Carol. Miles. When God's pronouncements in Genesis 3 are viewed as curses, what he says are believed to be how he wants the woman to be treated. And if God himself decries that a woman is good for nothing but childbearing, hard work, and to satisfy her husband sexually, this fosters the belief that woman is inferior and immoral. Treating her as any better or any as worthy of more than this can be seen as contrary to God's will. When people come to believe that the woman is not cursed, they must immediately begin to treat women with much more dignity and kindness. And that is so true. Yeah. So how our actions, of course, reflect what we believe. Um, God had said to Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Now we go into the Hebrew on this so that we can show you exactly what's going on here. In the Hebrew language, it says it like this, I will greatly multiply your sorrowful or painful work and your conceptions. Eve's work will now increase and not in just having children. But in verse 17, the next verse, the man is also told that he will have sorrowful or painful work as a result of turning from God. Let's read verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So God cursed the ground, yeah. but he has never cursed the man or the woman. And in this verse, if you place these statements side by side in verse 16 and in verse 17, both the man and the woman will have painful toil and hard work. God divided the labor between the sexes. The man suffers painful work to produce food. The woman suffers painful work to produce children and keep up her home and family. The same Hebrew word for painful and hard toil was used for both the man and the woman. The differences are responsibility, not equality. So why is the woman considered cursed? Because she's the one that gives life. Adam and Eve had been living in a lavish garden. Everything was comfortable and provided for them. Now God expelled them. Together, they were displaced from the garden world to a world of thorns and painful toil. We have a quote. From Genesis 1.28, God blessed both the man and the woman with dominion over the earth and with children. After the fall, this divine unity was split apart. The things that were given freely as blessings became hard to obtain. The ability to bear children intended by God as a blessing came to control and limit woman's life. The blessing of dominion over the earth becomes a weight on men as they struggle to rule not only the earth but each other as well. And God had given them both equal dominion That's over right. his creation. So now men will struggle to have dominion over women, and women struggle because of the oppression of men. That is not how God created it to be. Now, there's another misunderstood passage in Genesis 3.16. Probably the most misunderstood, huh? It is, Thy yeah. desire especially shall... by Brigham Young. He yeah. already used that. 
<laughs> thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And this is the one that they use to wield the power. The, the verse has become the justification, even sometimes the moving force behind patriarchy and the oppression of women. But before men can point a finger at the woman and consign her to subordination, don't forget that Adam also sinned, but he did it knowingly while Eve was deceived. So Adam's was the greater responsibility. God did not mandate male hierarchy and female subordination in this verse. This is a prophetic message to Eve that because she had turned from following God, she must now turn to a mere mortal who would begin to wield authoritative power over her. But that was never God's will in creation. God had provided all their needs in the garden, but now she must rely upon her husband to provide her needs. She becomes economically dependent upon him while she manages the family. The husband would rule over the wife, and patriarchy begins. Man ruled, not because God decreed it, but is the natural consequence of turning away from God's provision and and being dependent upon a man instead. Carrie Miles writes it eloquently like this. Yeah. The word used to describe this pattern of power in the world is patriarchy. Applies to not just the rule of men over women, but to the rule of a few men over everyone else, male and female. Man's rule over women and a few men controlling all other men are not God's will are not God's will, but the results of the fall. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed both the man and the woman with dominion over the earth and with children. After the fall, this unity was split apart. And so patriarchy, there's always a few men at the top, and the rest are dominated by these few men. Secular and religious history proves this to be true. We have another good quote. Patriarchy is usually thought of as men and of men and striving to keep, I'm sorry, patriarchy is usually thought of as men striving to keep women in a low position and man in the high one. Patriarchy is not just woman under man, but the rule of the few men over everyone else, male and female. This struggle for power among men takes the form of slavery, despotism, or dictatorship. And that was never God's plan. No. He didn't plan it that way in the beginning. And historically, the male is the, uh, is the aggressor. The male is the dictator. Patriarchy results in male aggression, bride price, dowry, large families that are difficult to support, polygamy, wars, violence against each other, gangs, honor killings, saving face, and so on. Dominate others or be dominated by them. Patriarchy does not favor all men. It favors only a few men because there's limited space at the top. <laughs> These few at the top will dominate everyone else, male and female. And a good example of that is the lost boys of polygamy. Yeah. There's too many men in the polygamy group, so they kick them out and they, dr they, they drive them away because so they sad. can't have too many men. That's patriarchy. Yeah. A few men over everyone else. That's power gone bad. And that is not God's way. Polygamists use various passages from the Bible to justify their polygamy doctrine and bad treatment of women. But Jesus' teachings and his treatment 
of women models the way that he wants it to be and how male and female can have the abundant life that he created us to enjoy. And when we turn to Jesus for truth and to Jesus alone for salvation, he promises us that new abundant life. He offers us freedom from slavery to traditions like patriarchy and polygamy. Gender equality that was stolen from his original design is restored in Jesus Christ to every true believer. Quote, quote from Galatians chapter 3. Now, this is revealing, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Speaking to Christian believers, yeah. biblical Christians, there's no gender inequality in Christ. There are no male or female differences in Christ. We are all equal. We follow no man as our prophet. We consider Jesus only as our only leader. And male and female follow him in absolute equality. Now we want to look at some profound Old Testament examples of female equality and leadership in a deeply entrenched patriarchal culture of the Old Testament, showing that God overruled patriarchy. And a classic story is in the Old Testament book of the Judges, chapters 4 and 5. It is a story of not just one, but two women who led the nation, one who led the nation, the other one brought military military victory against their enemies. We quote from an excellent book. I've got here, the, it's called, entitled Maelstrom, Maelstrom, and we're going to quote from that book. The story is a gender minefield for those who seek to regulate the cultural rise of women. In this Old Testament narrative, women are the heroes, while the men, primarily Barak, draw a firestorm of criticism for being cowardly, spineless, and weak. Not only is the leading male figure in this story bested by a woman, Barack is bested by two women. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. Um, Deborah's calling from God was to lead the nation in spite of its patriarchal culture. In today's language, her title would have been head of state, uh, commander-in-chief, yeah, prime minister. She was also chief justice. She even physically led the nation into victorious military battles. But sadly, Deborah's position has been excused as being punishment to the men because they were too cowardly to lead, that they should have stepped up to the plate, but they didn't, and so God shamed them by appointing a woman as their leader. But that's not the story that God tells us. God called Deborah to lead the nation because God wanted Deborah to lead the nation. There's nothing in the text uh, that this was to shame any man or that there were no reliable men to take that position. God does what he wants to do. Of course. He calls who he wants to call. And we don't have the privilege of justifying or explaining away God's actions and his choices. Now, Barak was the military leader under Deborah. And we do not read that he was a coward. A lot of people say he was. We don't read that in the text. We do read that as leader of the nation, Barak insisted Deborah lead them into the battle against their enemies. He said he wouldn't go unless she went. Well, Deborah is not only the leader of Israel, but she's also a prophetess, which is a female prophet equal to a male prophet. She prophesies to Barak that it will be a woman who gets credit for the military victory. And this isn't an I told you so scenario either. It's what happened because that's what God wanted to happen. We read from Maelstrom again. 
As for Barak, Scripture nowhere intimates that Barak was a, is a wimp, coward, or weak in faith. In fact, the opposite is declared. Barak's name is emblazoned in the Bible's Hall of Fame, Hebrews 11. Heralds Barak as a champion of faith along with Gideon, Samson, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And his name is right along there with them. So how can we say that he was weak-willed and, and was a coward? And these prophets also include the woman, Deborah, because she's called a prophetess. The Bible tells us that Moses judged disputes among the people. Mm -hmm. The same words for Deborah that she judged disputes among the people. Mm -hmm. In fact, of all the judges, only two of them are called prophets. One is Samuel, the other is Deborah. Mm -hmm. God obviously considered female as equal in ability, authority, and power. Now, the second woman in this story in Judges is Jael. She's the one who actually killed the military leader of their enemies. And so, this is a biblical example where two women led the nation into victory over their enemies. Now, Deborah was a true prophetess. God spoke through her to the people. She was Israel's spiritual leader. She was God's undisputed choice, and the people willingly accepted her leadership without complaint. Yet women today, thousands of years later, in Mormonism and polygamy, are not allowed to make their own spiritual decisions. The Mormon or polygamous male must do that for her. That's not God's doing. That's all man's doing. The next Old Testament example is Ruth. Yeah. She was served by a godly man. The man's name, of course, is Boaz, whom she eventually marries. But Boaz took the position as a servant. Now, now Boaz is the man. Yeah. You know, he's presented as the man. He had it all, and he had it all together. He is wealthy, and he's powerful, and he has integrity. He's a property owner. He has huge influence in community politics. I mean, he's got it all. But Boaz uses this power and leadership position for the greater good rather than for selfishness and oppression. Now, we have stark contrast here with Boaz and the two women in the story, Ruth and Naomi. Naomi and Ruth are totally powerless, yeah. and, and, and they're dirt poor, and they're, they're, they've been oppressed, and, and they're the exact opposite of Boaz in every way, except their love for God. When Ruth and Boaz first meet, it is a meeting of the male power and the female powerlessness of the patriarchal culture. Now, this really is a sweet and romantic story, but in the end, Boaz serves both Ruth and Naomi in, a, in this patriarchal culture rather than lording his patriarchal power by demeaning and repressing these women, which he very easily could have done. Now, we need to remember that Boaz is presented as a man's man. He's the, he's the handsome prince that yeah. comes to the rescue. <laughs> So we read money and power. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We read page one twenty one of Maelstrom. Yeah, a man of high standing would never stoop to choose a wife among the scavengers in his field. And that's exactly what Ruth was. Yeah, she was a scavenger. She was a gleaner. She was a yeah. gleaner yeah. in his field, and she was a lowly gleaner. And not only that, Ruth was a widow. Yeah, and she was from a foreign country. 
In fact, she was from Moab, and during this period of time uh, in Israel's history, Moab often came and invaded their country. Yeah, and so she all they could have also been uh, maybe not at that time they weren't enemies, but at points in time they were enemies of the Israelites. So Ruth did not have it all going <laughs> for her in any sense of the term. Um, we quote again from the page one twenty two of the Maelstrom. In the end, Boaz will redefine not only what it means to be a man, but he will raise the bar for what it means to be a man and a remarkable steward of power. <clears throat> These are examples. Yeah. These yeah. are examples for us. Being a spiritual man is not exerting authoritative power over others. Being a spiritual man is not subjugating women. A spiritual man, according to God's design, is a man who serves. Jesus said he came to serve, not to lord it over others, but to serve others. Power is good only as it is used to serve, but nothing is worse than power gone bad. In polygamous communities and patriarchal Mormonism, men have all the power and women are required by creed to submit to it. This is usurped power gone bad. God wants servants, not autocratic patriarchal tyrants. And that's what polygamy patriarchy is. So this is the end of part two. We've got parts, at least parts three and four to go. And in those, we're going to tackle some passages in the New Testament to show that in Christ, women are restored to their rightful place as equal to their husbands in the Christian experience and how Jesus himself treated females. And that's a very good study to see how yeah. Jesus treated them. Uh, now, as, we've only got a few seconds, but how does this fit in with the Mormon male thinking? Well, yeah, I, I, I think we misread these scriptures as well as the polygamists do. Uh, but I'm interested in what Eliza Snow said and how many of the polygamous women nowadays feel that same way, that, that this is God's program. I mean, they don't see it any other way, do they? This is If you have to live polygamy to go to heaven, polygamy becomes your savior. Yeah. And so, yes, polygamy is the redemption of the female, and the man has to live polygamy too. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, so in order to. So they're brainwashed or controlled as as Eliza Snow was mm -hmm. in in saying what she did. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that we are, we do kind of, uh, I think Mormons do misread all these scriptures and and, uh, and don't understand. I, I think that in the past that we would think that men were over women. We're the ones with the priesthood. Mm -hmm. We're the ones that bring them through the veil in the temple. We, it's, uh, we're the ones that know their secret name. They don't yeah. know our secret name. And, and it's all just contrived. It is. It's, it's just not, all man-made. And that's why we're using the Bible to bring yeah. all these things out. Yeah. And that's why one reason why grace was so exciting to me yeah. when I found out that it wasn't works but it was grace through what Jesus already did on the cross what that threw did. out religion and, and polygamy and it's all this patriarchy. It's a game changer. It's yeah, a game it changer really for sure. Thanks Earl. You bet. Thank <laughs> we'll you. meet again soon. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus told his disciples that all, although others lord authority over people that that wasn't his way. That his way is serving one another not lording it over anyone at any time in any any trumped up position. Jesus said the least would be the greatest and the greatest will be the least. Jesus is Lord. Yes.
yet he submitted to the whips and the spitting and the humiliation of religious, arrogant men who thought they were somebody. Jesus never condoned patriarchal authority. Polygamists in Mormonism submit to male spiritual authority that has never been authorized by God. Our only true spiritual authority is Jesus Christ, and he alone deserves our loyalty, our obedience, and a church, uh, not to a church or to a prophet or a bishop. So bow our hearts only to Jesus and forget submission to patriarchal men. Thanks for watching. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again. Thank you.